three, two, one. Hello, I'm James O'Loughlin. Welcome to Innovating for the Earth, the story of the development and use of new technology developed by Calix. It's technology that helps industry address environmental and sustainability challenges uh, like crop protection, aquaculture, wastewater treatment and carbon Reduction. We've previously looked at how the Calix technology was developed and how it works. Today, how is the Calix technology being used in the cement industry to capture carbon dioxide and reduce emissions? My guest is Calix project engineer Simon Thompson. Now, Simon worked for Calix while he studied mechanical engineering at the University of New South Wales in Sydney back then. Calix was still developing the technology and after Simon graduated in 2011, he joined Calix full-time and he's worked in many roles. In 2017, he moved to Europe to work on the Lilac Project, which you'll hear more about in a moment. Welcome, Simon. Thanks, James. Very nice to be here and talking to you. Now, we're going to talk about how the Calix technology is making a difference to the cement industry. Let's kind of look at the the problem, if you like, that it sure. solves firstly. How much carbon dioxide does cement generate every year in in a way that I'll understand? <laughs> it's it's actually hard to describe the numbers because they're so big. I mean, the human race emits roughly 50 billion tons per annum of CO2. So c- c- cement of that uh, number is about 8%. So it's almost uh, 5 billion tons per annum. It's a huge number. To compare it to something else, which is, I suppose, uh, something that we deal with more on a day-to-day basis, vehicular transport, uh, road transport emits about 12%. So although cement and lime emit less, less than road transport, as we're able to start decarbonizing the road transport industry, the proportion of CO2 emissions coming from cement and lime will increase. And the problem that they have at the moment is that there aren't solutions readily available on the market for decarbonizing the cement and lime industry. Whereas for road transport, you know, it's still on the horizon a little bit, but there are solutions such as uh, electrification, which are uh, almost ready right now. Yeah, And, and in the coal industry, it's gradually you know, being replaced by renewables, a yep. gradual transition. Uh, not, but cement and, and uh, cement in particular, it's hard to see. Well, there isn't. Is there a readily available substitute on the near horizon? No, no. Uh, and and that's, the, that's the tough thing. It's, it's also very separated from uh, the everyday person. Like uh, I don't look at uh, a building and think, wow, the CO2 emissions from that building are huge. Like uh, yeah. it's, it's just this uh, Im- immobile object, which um, it looks completely harmless. But uh, yeah, for every ton of uh, cement that you use, you're emitting roughly a ton of CO2 into the atmosphere. And it's something which 60% of that emission is completely unavoidable. So it's a, a part of the chemical process of producing cement. And so even if you were to produce that cement using wind turbines and solar, you'd still be emitting that CO2. And, and that, that's really where there needs to be a solution developed. So I know how my car creates carbon dioxide. It burns petrol and out it, out it uh, puffs from the exhaust pipe. How yeah. does cement production generate carbon dioxide? Well, a part of the cement production process is the calcination of limestone. So to break down what that actually means, that's taking a a mineral, a rock, heating it up to a very high temperature, and in doing so, it actually 
causes the CO2 that's attached to the rock chemically to become detached from the rock. And that um, the product from that process, lime, is one of the chemical components of, of cement or required in the cement production process. That then goes on into a rotary kiln, um, which is a big, long kiln, which has a big flame at one end to turn that into the clinker, which, is, uh, which forms the cement. But the calcination of limestone is inherently a part of producing the chemical precursor for, um, for the cement clinker. And it's not, it's not something where you can go and find a deposit of lime in the ground and use that instead. It, it doesn't exist. So you need to find limestone. You need to process it thermally uh, to remove the CO2. And that, the product from that process is then used in the production of cement. So it's not, it, there are no alternatives, basically, if you want to use cement. Right. And did you say that accounted for about 60% of the carbon dioxide produced? So what about the other 40%? The other 40% uh, comes from the heating process. And at the moment, the cement industry uses, um, it will use RDF, which is a waste, uh, refuse-derived fuel. Um, So that might be, you know, what uh, gets picked up by the garbage truck that comes outside your house. Uh, That might end up in a cement uh, kiln somewhere. Uh, Or it could come from coal or it could come from natural gas. Um, and they're starting to develop other solutions as well, but again, they're a bit on the horizon. So there might be the possibility to produce cement using um, a plasma or um, some electric heating source, but uh, it, it's much uh, much more difficult, and it's something which is still being uh, developed at this point in time, uh, just like our technology. So the so. solution to coal emissions is is using more renewable energy. The mm-hmm. solution to motor vehicle emissions is a transition to electric cars. But I think what you're saying is there's no there's nothing similar that's 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 there or about to be there with the cement industry. Yeah, that's exactly right. And and uh, as I was saying, the the heating portion of it is just one part of the problem. So. Uh, if yeah. taking the car example, if you were to replace the electric en- uh, the motor in a car with an electric motor, you are solving the problem as long as the electricity comes from a renewable source. It's it's not the same in cement where you replace uh, you you can't just replace the heating source and uh, and uh, wash your hands. There's still sixty percent of the the current emissions come from uh, the process. So before we get to how the Calix technology might help solve this problem. Are there mm-hmm. other solutions that people have been trying? Yeah, there are There are lots of solutions that people are looking at. I mean, uh, the cement and lime industries have or are becoming a bigger focus, I would say, uh, with respect to decarbonisation because the other industries are developing solutions uh, which are coming much closer to market. Um, these two industries, they're, they're well, I guess they're a little bit behind um, the, the others. They still need to develop solutions. And so um, we're one of a number of technologies that may be able to serve that industry. And, you know, speaking as a person who lives on planet Earth, who wants to see planet Earth um, not kill all the people on it, <laughs> uh, I, I don't really mind which solutions are successful. Um, obviously, working at Calix, uh, I would love for our lilac technology to be successful, but I would be equally happy if all of the other ones were successful. And, and frankly speaking, uh, cement and lime produces so much CO2 per year that we kind of need everything to work to, to solve that problem. So let's talk about the Calix so- solution or attempted solution. Uh, mm-hmm. What happens? Okay, so basically, as I said, uh, at the moment, uh, uh, the energy to heat the calcination uh, process comes from something burning. Uh, so coal or, or, uh, or waste or natural gas 
that process produces CO2, but it also produces a number of other gases. And, and the problem that uh, exists in an existing cement plant is that that combustion process happens with the mineral, with the limestone that you're trying to calcine. Um, that means that all of the CO2 that's emitted from the calcination process, from heating the mineral, is then mixed with all of these other gases like nitrogen. And the problem with that is that if you want to take the CO2 and use it or sequester it, you then have to separate it from all of those other gases, which is extremely difficult and expensive. Um, the solution which Calix has is to basically put a wall between the heating process and the calcination process. So all of the CO2 that's emitted, the 60% of that CO2 that's emitted through the calcination process is emitted in a closed system, uh, which means that the CO2 is, is pure. So they can take that CO2 and without any other process, they can utilize it or sequester it, which is extremely, uh, extremely useful. And the fact that it's our, our technology is able to be very cheap, um, both to operate the, the process and to actually build the, the plants in the first place, uh, that makes it very advantageous. So this is big technology to develop. Did you yeah. have partners and assistants? Yeah, very much. Uh, and really, Lilac is a group of companies which are working together towards this goal. And it includes cement companies such as Heidelberg Cement. Um, it include oh, and uh, Semex, um, Simpor uh, in Portugal. Uh, it includes some um, limestone companies such as Lamast. Uh, but we also have uh, research partners who are helping us. Um, Surf, who are in Greece, um, are, are involved. We also have partners who are there for aiding us in communicating what we're doing uh, with the public. Um, we have partners who are involved for the purpose of um, modeling the improvement that comes from our technology because it's kind of not as simple as uh, just saying, well, we can capture 60% of that CO2, that 60% tick. You need to look at the whole life cycle of uh, the technology all of the equipment that you need to use to make it work. And then you need to say, once we include all of that compared to everything that's included in the current technology, are we still, uh, are we still beneficial? And so uh, that's, a, that's a huge task, actually, to um, look into that detail, to model it, and then be able to um, uh, communicate it. Yeah. It sounds extremely huge. At what point are you now? How far have you got? Yeah, well, at the moment where we are is we've been able to demonstrate the fundamentals of the technology in the Lilac 1 project. And, and Lilac 1, as a project, just finished its five-and-a-half-year uh, lifespan. The purpose of that project was really to take our technology and apply it into the cement industry at a, a relatively small scale. So we put in a single one of our reactors, which processed about 5% of the total CO2 emissions from a uh, plant in Belgium. Um, the purpose of that was not to not to replace the entire existing process. It was just to demonstrate um, and develop the technology um, in in situ, uh, operating on the actual cement meal and using the actual fields. It, that that was an important first step. Where we are now is we're trying to take what, everything that we've developed. And we're trying to apply that at a scale which is large enough that it is applicable on any cement plant. So it's still 20-25% of the total scale of a typical cement plant uh, in Lilac 2. However, at the scale that it will, will be, we will have solved all of the challenges that come with scaling up to apply it to any, any plant. Wow. So going back to Lilac 1, building the original plant, mm. given 
one had never been built before, that must have uh, thrown up many challenges. Yeah, it was an extraordinary challenge to build Lilac 1. Um, I, I'm glad to say that we were able to do it successfully on time and on budget, but it was it was a huge challenge and it required a lot of um, a lot of work from everyone involved uh, at all levels of the the project. Um, did did uh, things go largely to plan, or alternatively, <laughs> did you have to change the plan a lot? Yeah, it, that's a really good question. Um, and as anyone who's involved in projects would know, um, you've got three things that you need to focus on: uh, time, the budget, and uh, your your scope. And we did need to uh, make decisions around uh, the scope, as an example, in order to keep the uh, budget and the schedule together. Uh, an example of this was that we were looking at some things that were not entirely required to demonstrate the technology, but would have been improvements from an efficiency standpoint or things like this, such as we were going to preheat the cement meal before it went into the reactor. We made a decision to instead focus only on the reactor itself in order to um, keep the keep the budget uh, in shape. So um, that was an example of a project management decision, which was a difficult one, but it was ultimately the right one because, you know, the, the technology can't be successful if the project isn't successful. And we were able, able to make the project successful. And so we've been able to demonstrate the technology in Belgium. And that's allowed us to move on to LILAC stage two. So um, Was yeah. it a little bit like, like I write stories and yeah. I have a kind of vague idea where it's going, but I don't know exactly where it's going. But then when I get a bit further into it, yeah. I can kind of see what's going to happen next and then when I get to that bit I can see what's going to happen after that like did, did you have a big plan and then as you got further into it you could see more specifically yeah. what had to happen next what you could keep as planned what you had to change I think that's a great analogy actually because um, again this is a brand new technology so it comes with a huge amount of research and development so when we started the project we couldn't say exactly what everything would look like because there was a big research and development project um, subproject which had to happen in parallel to develop the components that then needed to be engineered and put in so at the start of the project, it was impossible to say it will cost exactly this much, it will um, take this long to build, or it will look exactly like this. We had to start the project, start doing the work in order to unveil those um, pieces of information and then complete the project. And, and it was for that reason that everyone had to be very flexible, which um, uh, it, it's quite difficult from an engineering standpoint because um, it takes a lot of work to, to build anything. And every time a change comes into the uh, plan, it requires a lot of other things to change as well. So, uh, yeah, it. Uh, I think that's a good analogy. Yeah, a little bit on the and, run. And flexibility, um, flexibility yeah. is exciting, but it also creates a lot of anxiety in people, doesn't it? Did you have to manage <laughs> that in your own? Yeah, yeah. Um, I think that again, the the closer you get to the people who are uh, who are building things, uh, the engineers, and then um, the construction people. Uh, the more anxiety that causes. But at the end of the day, um, you kind of just need to make sure that you communicate the reason for the changes as they're coming up because there's always a good reason that something has to be done. Um, but someone who is turning a bolt on a uh, on a piece of steel or equipment is, isn't immediately, um, isn't seeing that as obviously as uh, the engineers are or the people in the R&D team. So, yeah, it, that's it a really... great point, actually, because it's it's really easy for mm. people to be told things and think, oh, management—they're just changing their minds; they're hopeless. But yeah. as you say, if you explain exactly why, then you're more likely to get a unified, yeah. a unified team. 
Yeah, it's super important. It's really important, and I think it's a, a big mistake that um, can happen uh, in a project such as this is is not communicating accurately or, or um, uh, completely the reason that things are the way that they are because um, people get disenfranchised or uh, lose interest or things like that. And at the end of the day, you know, you can talk about the technology or the project or the companies that are involved, but it's the people in those companies who are actually making those things real. And if they lose their passion or if they lose their interest, no matter how big or how much money is thrown at something, it's uh, it's just not going to happen. So yeah, it's it's been really important. Well, you to, said it's, a, it's important in projects like these, but mm. it's important in any organization. I don't know if yeah, you've had the yeah. experience of, you know, ringing up your phone company or talking to someone in a hotel and all of a start, sudden – you know, they start complaining about how hopeless management is. And yeah. You think, wow, this is a troubled organization. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, and it's exactly, you're exactly right. It, it's the same problems that they're facing that we're facing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, Simon, Lilac 2, where are you at at the moment? Well, Lilac 2, so as I said, we've kind of uh, been successful in demonstrating the technology, but there, there do remain challenges in um, in the technology itself, which need to be resolved in order to make it as, as large as it needs to be to be commercial. It's it's actually not as easy as just taking, you know, a design for something that works, sticking it on a printer and saying, print it 200% and it will be 200% bigger, you know. Um, scaling scaling up technology is very uh, difficult and complicated, and it's for that reason that we needed this Lilac Two project to take all of our learnings from Lilac One, find the challenge with um, scaling it up, and solve those challenges. And so, my responsibility in the Lilac Two project is actually I'm, I'm managing the work package, which is responsible for the R and D. But because of my background as an engineer. I see it sort of from both the R&D and the engineering perspective and I'm able to uh, take the engineering challenges or the uh, the things that need to be known in order to build a plant uh, and develop an R&D program to resolve those challenges. And so that's sort of where we are at the moment. We've gotten through our what we call the pre-feed, basically a feasibility study for the project. We've uncovered all of those challenges that we need to resolve. We've resolved most of them. Uh, there do remain a few which we need to um, to complete, uh, but we have a program to complete those, uh, to close out those challenges by uh, by November of this year and we're uh, well advanced in our, uh, in our work in resolving those challenges. So um, This must be costing an enormous amount of money. <laughs> um, are yeah. you still in the kind of investment stage you know, hoping and being confident that you'll get it right and suddenly we'll have a very scalable, saleable technology. Yeah, well, I, I suppose that's where, yes, there, there has been investment from the industry. Uh, our partners, uh, our industrial partners who want to have a technology available to them are investing heavily in the project. We also have uh, a huge amount of money coming in from the European uh, Commission through their Horizons uh, 2020 scheme in, in the form of grant funding. Uh, and I think that that's really instrumental uh, in making something like this possible because, um, de- as you say, developing technology is hugely expensive and resource intensive. And um, uh, as, as much as it would be uh, wonderful if uh, all of the companies on the planet could just invest in uh, resolving these future challenges at the end of the day, it, it's a, a global worldwide uh, problem for everyone and uh, governments yeah. getting involved. It, it really does help. It does help make things happen, yeah. Yeah. And uh, th- there's a demonstrator. Now, what is mm. that and what what, uh, what does that mean and where are you at with that? 
Yeah, so um, I suppose there are a few different terms for what each different thing will be. Uh, we have a what we call a pilot in Belgium. Uh, that's the very small scale one. Well, I say small scale, it's 5% of a cement plant, but it's still a 60 meter tall tower. So um, small on a certain scale. <laughs> Um, that's our pilot, and that's the one which was just demonstrating the technology itself. The demonstrator, the term, the demonstrator, um, uh, what that means is basically it's demonstrating the technology that will be applied um, onto cement plants. So again, it won't be the full scale, but it'll be at a scale which is completely relevant and is able to then be, um, you know, scaled up the little bit up and down that it needs to be to um, to be applied anywhere. And so that's so what it serves the, the same function as those uh, little bottles of perfume. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you can have a little whip <laughs> the trial bottle, yeah. Just see if you like it. It's just a little bit bigger and more sophisticated. Yeah, exactly. And so Lilac 1 is the is the little taster bottle that you get in the airport. And then Lilac 2 is the is the big uh, sample perfume bottle. And then, um, yeah, uh, we'll, we'll soon enough have the full perfume uh, for anyone that needs it. So just so I've got this right, this is – you were talking initially that – uh, 60% of the carbon dioxide that is produced in the creation of, of cement is mm. inevitable. So we're talking about this being a solution to that 60%. Is that yeah. correct? Yeah, that and that's a really good point. Yeah, because um, there, there does remain, uh, even with our technology, the need to heat the process. But um, the the benefit, I suppose, of what we're doing is that because we're separating the process from the heating source with a, with a wall, basically – um, the the heat is able to come from any source, and so we we already uh, or when I speak say we um, Calix already has um, plants operating which are running on electricity which can come from a renewable source. So um, that forty percent which we're not dealing with, well, which which our technology um, is not focused on, is still able to be resolved using uh, conventional technologies, um, low carbon uh, electricity or any other source of uh, low carbon fuel. So, um, yeah, it, it's something where we can kind of collaborate a bit with um, uh, with other other technologies as well, because there are other ways to capture emissions from uh, combustion sources, and we just make it a lot easier by already taking away that um, uh, that sixty percent, the majority mm. of the CO two that's emitted. Yeah. So that that forty percent, the remaining forty percent of carbon dioxide, that that's not core business for you. But on the other hand, that is something you are interested in collaborating with others to try and try and create solutions for. Well, um, I, I suppose I, I I would probably articulate it as um, it might not be necessarily core business for Lilac. Lilac is still using conventional combustion, but it is core business for Calix. We we are developing, um, or we we have developed actually, I should say, uh, electric calciners which are in operation. Um, we have one uh, in operation in Australia and one which is coming online in uh, Seville in Spain. Um, and using if we were to just apply those technologies to lilac, um, we would we would basically be addressing 100% of the CO2 emissions from uh, from the cement and lime industries. So um, yeah, I, I think that uh, that that's our solution. So that could really. be lilac three. Could that be lilac? Yeah, three? yeah, that could be lilac three. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, and it's really up so to the, the initial. Oh, yeah, sorry, sorry, the initial 60% of, of, of carbon dioxide that Lilac 1 and 2 are, are specifically focusing on. Mm -hmm. Are there – I mean, you, you very generously said earlier that the more technologies in this space uh, together because we all want to solve this problem because it, you know, it, it, uh, it threatens the world. It affects world. all of us, yeah. 
Yeah. So I don't want to use the word rivals um, uh, because it's not like you're competing to sell the most chocolate bars, mm-hmm. but are there other other technologies that are trying to do the same thing? And if so, you know, do you see yourself at some way, in some way being in competition with them? Uh, yes and no, I suppose. I, I mean, again, from my perspective, our technology addresses a portion of the directly addresses a portion of the CO two emissions um, without any uh, any further processing. That doesn't mean that another technology couldn't be applied to that forty percent. So there are solutions. Um, the solutions such as um, amine scrubbing, which is a technology where they run the the CO two emissions with the nitrogen and everything through these uh, chemical scrubbers, which extract just the CO two, and then you're able to run the amine, which has captured the CO two, through another process to take the CO two back out. That sort of technology does already exist um, and is being uh, they're developing it for the cement and lime industries, just like we are. Uh, there are other technologies such as oxyfuel, where they burn the fuels that they already burn, but in an oxygen stream to get rid of all of the other um, nasties that are in the uh, combustion process. Those technologies can exist alongside our technology. So they could be applied to a cement plant, which is running off uh, the lilac technology. And in fact, it, it might be attractive depending on the scenario at a certain location. So yeah, I, I guess it depends on how um, how brutal you are, <laughs> whether you consider them to be uh, competitors or, uh, again, really from my perspective, it, it, it we, we can collaborate or, or we can um, we can apply all of these things um, and we'll have to, frankly, apply everything that we can to resolve this problem. It's just too big uh, to solve one way. Yeah. Yeah. And you're... You're optimistic and, mm. and you know, you've now been through Lilac 1 and into Lilac 2 and yeah. so it's not a, it's not a kind of Pollyanna-ish um, <laughs> optimism. It's a well-founded rational optimism about mm. the ability of your technology to make a, a big difference and then p- presumably if you do prove it, then the, just the right levers have to be pushed perhaps at a policy, governmental way or, yeah. or or somewhere to incentivize companies you know to to want to want to buy it and use it yeah yeah and um look i i, I know that we've got um, a colleague of mine uh, daniel rennie who is our general manager of cement uh, decarbonization uh, he'll have a lot to say on this particular topic because it's uh, very relevant to him uh, but yes, we we will need um, uh, incentives uh, to, uh, I suppose, drive uh, drive this change because it it doesn't cost anyone anything to emit CO two. So uh, as long as it costs a single euro or a single dollar more to capture that CO two, it's already not economically attractive. So there does need to be some uh, mechanism to um, incentivize people to to do that. Uh, just maybe going back to your point about the optimism uh, that's required. Um, I think that it's really easy to say in hindsight it was reasonable to be optimistic, but um, I, I, I always love to think back to the start of these projects when you don't have something successful, uh, you don't have the technology already successful, and you have to build and maintain the optimism within yourself and within the team and within all of your potential partners um, to get everyone on board and working on the same page. And yeah, I, I think that... Um, there, there is a point in time when your optimism needs to be not unfounded, but you do need to really um, uh, build it. You do need to build optimism before you have something concrete to point at. 
Yeah, to justify. That can be tough, can't it? Yeah. You know, there can be times when you're lying in bed at night and just thinking, is this, is all this effort (laughs) of all these people, is it going to end in nothing? I mean, it's, it can be quite terrifying, can't it? Oh, yeah, but it's an, it's a fundamental part of these research and development um, projects. You know, you have to go into them knowing that it, is something that's never been done before. There are aspects of it which are unknown. And so you might come across something which tells you that it is not uh, possible. And you still have to maintain the optimism and maintain the drive uh, to answer that question before you can go any further. So, yeah. Um, well, that creates I, the excitement too, the adventure. I, absolutely, yeah, yeah. I, I love that aspect of um, these projects actually because uh, so many times you run into something which is um, – a lot of people would just look at it and say, oh, that's too hard or it's not possible. or And you just have to find a way. Um, you just have to. Yeah. And you have, and well done. And look, before we end, I want to ask you about this. You have built a Formula V racing car <laughs> of yeah. your own design. And you a couple of years ago, you raced it and won um, a Division Two championship. Now, can you tell us a bit more about that? Yeah, yeah. Well, I suppose it was... Um, it was a bit the same thing as what uh, what Lilac has been in a, a, a very small form. It was um, uh, an idea I had. Um, I, I thought of I, I looked at this category which I was racing in at the time, and um, I could see a few things where you know I said to myself, "Well, if I were to build my own car, I would do it this way and this way." And I actually so what do these cars look like? Formula V. Oh, it's like a little baby Formula One car, but without the wings. Yeah, right. um, yeah. Um, and yeah, so I I kind of just. There was no point in time where I decided I was building a car. It kind of was just I made decisions that ended up forming a car. Like, oh, I, I think I could uh, I could uh, buy this uh, engine or I could buy this bit and then I could figure out how to do this. And, you know, before too long, you end up most of the way down building a car and you're like, okay, actually, I'm building a racing car. And then, and then yeah, I, uh, I raced it. I didn't actually win... Um, uh, races, but there were there were two divisions within um, within this competition, and uh, because my car was new and I was new into were the there two divisions, <laughs> people who built their own car and everyone else. <laughs> uh, no, it was a uh, it was it was people who um, it, as long as you finished above a certain position in a championship, you would be in division one. And because I was new, uh, I wasn't in that position. So um i suppose it was a little bit easier for me but at the same time it's a it's a bit of a, a tick um against this yeah. against this little project of mine yeah yeah definitely any crashes uh no thankfully no Good. i uh i managed top to keep speed. my nose clean a uh, top speed uh, 182 kilometers an hour yeah it doesn't sound that much but then when you're four uh 40 centimeters off the ground your eyes you know it feels pretty quick <laughs> I bet it does. I bet it yeah. Um, We've been talking to Calix Project Engineer Simon Thompson. Thank, thank you so much, Simon. Excellent. Thank you. Thanks, James. 